William Carey University is one of the top universities in the Southeast. With multiple scholarship opportunities for incoming students, it's one of the most affordable private universities in all of America. Carey provides a multitude of undergraduate and graduate programs, as well as over 10 different doctoral degrees. Did I mention that Carey also boasts one of the top 100 med schools in the country? And I also hear that the baseball team's pretty dang good. Check them out on all forms of social media and visit wmcarry.edu for more information. If you're looking for hats for your business, hunting club, or just whatever, go check out Chickasahay Hat Company. It's locally owned by good folks, so you don't have the hassle of dealing with big box companies. They carry multiple different brands and sizes, including the number one selling hat, the Richardson 112. Custom embroidery is available on all hats and shirts, and to top it off, 10% of all profits go to charities for people that struggle with addiction. Like I said, good people. You can check them out on Facebook at Chickasahay Hat Company or on the web at chickasahayhatco.com. Mississippi, you know how hard it was for me to leave. Ooh, Mississippi, I miss you, I hope you miss me. We're back. Another episode of the Pinstripes to Camo podcast. We're back together for the first time in a while. Um, so it's nice to be face to face again. Not over the phone. We're hunting. Yeah, we've, been, the whole we've time. been doing a lot of calling in. So <laughs> yeah. And tonight we have a. This is going to be a. This is going to be a fun show. It's going to be unique. I think it's something that we've never really done. It is something we've never really done, but we kind of always do it, if that makes sense. Um, and we'll get into more of that in a minute. We've got Colby, uh, Colby Verdon on the show tonight. Uh, Colby's a apprentice native, uh, graduate of William Carey, uh, when, 20, 21, 21 think, graduate, and then uh, went and did his, his postgraduate work at uh, Ole Miss. And that's what we're going to kind of get into is uh, the stuff you did in grad school and and what I like to refer to as the uh, Oxford Community College. <laughs> we'll find out later how he how much he hates Mike Bianco. <laughs> Stop! Stop! Every, every Stop. time we say Bianco, Stop. we're going to cheer. Stop. <laughs> we can't do that because the worst shows in the world do that. We can't. That's terrible. That's it. cringy. I couldn't help Nobody, it. Everybody I hates found, that. So... Y'all just become the sitcom of the outdoor yeah, podcast. Yeah, like, we're going to do a sitcom, and it's going to suck. There's going to be a guy sitting over here talking about squirrel calls and being cheering the whole time. I was going to make a... You want me to hit the dun... No. So I did find presets on our new uh, our, our mixer. It's not new. We've had it for forever. Ben's just That's technologically true. impotent. It's true. We've had it like a year. And I think he tonight... It's not new. Out, hey, He's wait, like, oh. this plays noise. Yeah. When he hit the button, he looked at me like my phone was playing something, and I was like... I thought I it was like, like a I, child. I accidentally hit it, and I thought it, it was like I discovered fire. Right. I was so, so confused. They hit the button, and they just were staring at each other, not speaking, <laughs> while the rock music played. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, before we get going, duck season. Well, by the time the show comes out, duck season will be over. Almost. Well, it'll be over for most of us. Yes. I will, have, I will hunt a youth and veteran weekend next weekend. Which would be the second and third? Nope, third and fourth. 
Yeah. I'll go up on the second, third, and fourth. But we've had a uh, – I mean, it's been a terrible year still. <laughs> but we've had a great last two weeks. I mean, wild. All right. I wrote my column last week mm-hmm. about it, about just how bad it has been. Yep. <laughs> and then finally you get the polar vortex and – I think I, I made a reference to the Disney movie Frozen. Uh-huh. I said the Midwest had to become Arendelle. We needed it, and uh, it happened. Not there yet, dude. Hit the button? No. <laughs> Please don't hit the button. <laughs> so, yeah, up until, this is sad to say, but on a camp where it's duck and deer hunting of 1,100 acres plus, up until about January 10th, I think we were at 22 ducks for the year. I, I Yes. We were probably... Right at 200 or just over 200 now. What's the average every year? 250. That's what I thought. So it's still going to be a down year. Mm-hmm. But it's, I mean, if it wasn't for this freeze, it would have been an awful year. But this freeze was nice. And I hate it. I still wish I'd have been able to duck hunt in the month of December and kill ducks, but we couldn't. Right. But, I mean, the last three trips I've made, I've made limits. I mean, it's been crazy good. We killed some banded ducks up there the other day. Yeah, Luke and Danny each got a banded wood duck. Really? Yep. One was out of that. Wisconsin and one was out of Arkansas. Okay. And one of them we were real surprised as a four-year-old. Or it was banded four years ago, the one in Wisconsin, I think. It was, so it, yeah, it's it was made a, wood a number duck. of trips. Yeah. It was a wood duck. What about Drake's? the mallards you killed? How old? Uh, we don't. I don't know. We didn't have any bands on them or anything. I thought you had. I thought you kind of determined. You it can off kind of curl. tell off curls. Uh, we did. I didn't get any triple curls, which are going to be your right. most mature. But I had most of them were double. Yeah. And then, <clears throat> so my wife comes up Monday of this week for her one duck kind of the year. That's what she comes up for usually. We have a good time. And that morning it had slowed down a little because it was starting to thaw. But me and my dad had gone out and killed eight, so it was still a decent hunt. And we hunt that afternoon. It was real slow. And right before the end of shooting light, uh, we had geese circling over speckled bellies. They come in. My dad kills a speckled belly goose. So I was like, all right, we didn't get skunked. And then right after that, I see a bird cupped up on the left. I didn't call or anything. It just cupped up, came in and landed. And, well, right as it was hitting the water, I said, shoot it. Shelly shot, folded it. And it was a Drake canvas back, which is very rare for where we are. Yeah. They usually like big, big water, like Grenada Lake, Eden Lake. Right, Barnett. Where was this hat? This Sorry. was uh, just north of Greenwood, and it was in a catfish pond. So that's what made it weird. So about that was it was one of the catfish ponds. Yep, seven north. Wow. Okay. Um, but yeah, that. So the Monday prior, we got a three man limit. I went home on Tuesday. I went back up Sunday afternoon, and my buddy Myers and I and Luke hunted, and we got a limit in like an hour and a half. Yeah. On seven north in the afternoon. Did you guys have any water still frozen when you were up there? Oh yeah, because. You know, I I think I mentioned it on the – I can't remember if I mentioned it on the last show or not. I shot a buck the night all that stuff was moving in, and it, it the dogs drowned it in the creek. Mm-hmm. And I went back last week – this past weekend, and the creek was frozen. Oh, yeah. So the deer hadn't floated up. Yeah. You um, should be good now. Yeah, but we got all this rain. So now, yeah, you got a big flow going through there. You yeah, gotta hope you get caught on something. Yeah, I don't he know. He's in the Mississippi River. <laughs> no, if he's in the Mississippi, I'll tell you how much ice. <laughs> yeah. Aliens were involved if he's in the Mississippi. Yeah, they, right. I'll tell they you how much ice we had. Uh, we were on seven north on Sunday afternoon. We get a limit. 
as we were getting ready to leave, <clears throat> there was one other hunting party. They come over from four north and said, we have a limit, but we can't get one of them. It's on the ice where you send your dog. I was like, yeah. Well, I mean, when, th- when I said this, I thought it was like 50 yards on the ice. No, it was literally in the middle of the pond, like 150 yards. So I try to walk Toxie out so I can line him up, and I fall through. I'm, on, I'm in waders, though, so I'm okay, but it was like knee deep. Yeah. But Luke looks like 175 pounds. Luke gets up on the ice, walks probably 50 yards out there with Toxie. Did he really? Never breaks. Since Toxie, he gets the bird, comes back. And I was like, man, that ice has been here like a week, and you're still walking on it. Yeah. But now, within two days, it was done. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. You say me and a group of guys on a standby in uh, Mahana, I believe. You hear that word right there? Standby? Yeah. Swat on duck hunt. Go ahead, though. <laughs> on a standby that we slept none and pulled up and got lucky and got a standby, we killed our first canvas back. Okay. And it was in like a just a small plot of water. Like it was like they circled us. We wounded it. I walked it down, got the stomach virus directly after killing the duck in the hole. Oof. Felt like I was dying on the drive home. All worth it. Um, but got that canvas back when they came around us we shot and they were behind us and my brain was like there's no way that is that is a canvas back there's no way yeah and it was a the coolest mix bag I ever got on public land it was a, we shot a drake pintail a drake mallard a drake canvas back and those two one or two spoonies and a teal and yeah. you'd have thought i won the lottery the super bowl and the national championship at the same time two more duck things to tell you i do not have a duck mounted shelly will though i took her canvas back yeah, you said you were gonna. So she's gonna have one, and then the other one that's funny is. Bless was, you, Hunter. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> Bless it, you, Hunter. It was so good Sunday afternoon that Luke said, "Look, let's just shoot drakes. It's this good because I've got a video of Toxie getting his first double retrieve. Right, and from the time he's getting the birds to the time he gets back to me, they open up fire like three more times. Birds are coming in with the dog in the spread. It's because we had the only open water on the place. Right, and uh, I said, like, right, that's fine. We'll do that.' And so we were about twelve birds in. And we've shot nothing but drakes." Drake shovelers, mallards, gadwall, all that. And a gadwall hen comes in, and Ben, she floats over the top of the decoys and is backpedaling and just literally is sitting there. And they're looking at her. And I was like, oh, not happening. Whoom, smoked her. <laughs> I said, don't get too mad at me. And he said, uh, she was asking for it. I was yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> so we ended up with like two hens for that hunt. I'm not good enough of a duck hunter to distinguish at 4 p.m. on a sun on a bright day, you can. But yeah, yeah if it's an early morning, no, you can't really. Like anytime I'm shooting, I just see birds. Yeah. I mean, when we went the other day, I almost shot a crow because he flew <laughs> low enough. Yeah. It's like I'm shooting him. Look, um, for, look for the wing beat. So Matt got his Matt got a real taste of duck hunting the other day, the hard way. Oh, I haven't even talked to Hunter about this. Go ahead. Hunter, we went with uh, Weston. <laughs> it was nice as can be to, to bring him out, to bring us out there. Hunter, I've never worked so hard for a duck in my life. Did y'all shoot a bunch of greenheads and pintails? No, we shot a bunch of teal and wood ducks. See, I'd, I'd <laughs> blow my brains out of that duck all day. So listen, we get, he first off tells us to be there 5 to 5.15. I'm there at 5, maybe 5.01. Ben rolls up at 5.29. Yeah. We have a, about a two-mile four-wheeler ride, something like that. Yes, two, three miles. So we go, and then he goes, well, we got a canoe. Well, the canoe was for us to push our gear in. <laughs> and I had, the wasn't far, a ride in. I had the farthest spot. And so I had to walk through <laughs> knee to waist-deep water pushing a canoe. For How far was I from you? A couple hundred yards? 
Yeah, I had a long walk. 200, 250 yards from me. I just said, no, dog, I'm right here. And <laughs> it's not like you were walking through, like it was knee to waist deep, but it wasn't like, like it was soft. Stumps everywhere. Stumps. It was, it was like an old beaver pond, and it was tough. It was tough. And Matt brought me – I don't have any waders. So Matt brought me a size 12 waders that I kept pulling out of every time I'd take a step. Yeah, they were a little big for him. Yeah. So it Sounds terrible. Ben had the shortest walk. Weston had the second longest or shortest. I had the long walk. And I had my dog with me, and I was trying to keep him under control. But he did fine. He got a lot of the birds. So Yeah. And I shot everything that flew in the sky, or shot at everything that right. flew in the sky. Were you shooting? Sky blasting 101 was being. I was sitting there looking. I was like, here comes a couple of woodies. And then, <laughs> well, there they go. Were you shooting road flares? No, I should have. You've been have shooting some. road flares, dude. I have some now, and I should have. But, I mean, I was, if, if they were in sight, they got shot at. Fair enough. I will tell you that his friend, Weston, is a shot. Yeah. He didn't miss many. Guy can shoot better than anybody I know. There's no doubt. Um, and he's been like that since we were kids. Um, and that just drive you crazy. He had a lot of practice. I mean, we grew up out on the farm, and I shot what, it in a lot to do. I shot it shoot. two, and I killed one. <clears throat> I missed a teal, and then I had a wood duck come by. That's me. a lot of work. I was two shots. I was, I was, uh, I was batting 500 uh, when the first group of ducks came by. And I ended up batting, I don't know, somewhere between like zero fifty for the day. <laughs> I shot one of the first two birds that came by me, and then I shot at a hundred after that. No success. Oh, oh yeah, I'm super glad I didn't come. I'm thrilled that I didn't come. <laughs> I told you, I told you, I know these things, dude. I know. Uh, now, a week before Matt and them had that great success at their place, I text Matt and said, you're going to kill ducks next week. Yo, you yeah. text us in the group. Yeah, you're going to kill a lot of ducks next week. That's when I would have put on my waders and went duck hunting. When you were like, hey, man, just come duck hunting tomorrow morning. But absolutely not. It's going to be terrible. <laughs> well, it, you know, after we left, yeah, I saw that picture. Uh, after we left, Weston went to another pond on the place. And there were like twenty eight mallards in the pond. Gosh. Yeah, well so we just, picked the wrong pond. We just picked the wrong <laughs> pond. But Well, the mallards wouldn't have landed if y'all had been there. Absolutely not. I shot them you before they shot landed. At them before <laughs> they got... <laughs> shot them when they got in the stratosphere. Yeah. yeah. It was so bad, like they were I got put out like, I got put out first and I'm standing there and the sun's just starting to break. And I've got wood ducks flying by my face, and I'm watching them. They've still got flashlights on going to their spots. I'm sitting here going, man, I could have I could have killed 10 birds by now. And uh, I finally hollered out. I was like, can we start shooting? And they told me it was a few more minutes or something. We all in private? Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah, whatever, dude. All right. Let's get into uh, – Let's get into what we came here to get into. All right, Colby, explain to me your 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 I guess it's your thesis for uh, for grad school at Ole Miss, and you you did it on hunting culture in the South, right? Yes, uh, I uh, when I got to Ole Miss, I kind of 
you know, growing up in Prentice, you know, like everyone's a hunter. You never really think that much of it because it's what everyone does. I, I mentioned it. I think I mentioned it in my thesis. If not, I talked about it in my defense. The people who don't do it are the oddballs. Like you remember like going to school and like you'd be like, oh, like so and so. The to weird go. kid moves there from faraway land and he doesn't know how to hunt. Exactly. Yeah. It's even weirder when it's somebody that's like from there that you're like, man, he grew up here. He never yeah, right. know how to hunt. Freaking idiot. But <laughs> but uh so I get there and you know, I'm it's one of the first times I'm like a a majority of the people that I'm spending a lot of my day around have like no con like they have a concept of it, but they don't know how deep it goes. And then I uh we're trying to pick a topic. I'm kinda panicking at the thought of having to write all of this and I uh, I was thinking about doing a different topic, and I brought it up to a professor. I was like, you know, I could do, I could do hunting and fishing, like outdoorsman culture in the deep south. And my advisor, she was like, do you think there's enough? You know, like they, they want to make sure because the worst thing in the world is it for you to flesh out your entirety of your project, and you only have 20 pages, and you are panicking. She was like, do you think there's enough? This is what really turned it for my professor. She was like, do you think there's enough here to write an entire thesis on. I was like, I really do. I think so. And so before you can officially, officially be deep into your thesis, you do something called a prospectus. I don't, I, I bet a lot of programs do it, but I know for us they made us do it. So you're, you have a group of professors, you have your advisor, and then three other professors that you choose to be on your board. And you go in and do like pretty much like the skeleton of your project for them. Like my prospectus was like 40 pages. And you, uh, that's the skeleton. That's the skeleton. I am looking at. I think my total thesis came out to 108 pages, 32,504 words. That's title page, everything. Did you just use, did you use Chat GPT. Oh yeah, I just typed in hunting and I turned that <laughs> Sick. Bad, and I turned that bad boy in. Um, I would go barefoot to Weston's place before I wrote 108 pages. Um, and then, believe it or not, I that's bad, dude. I need to try to find the the. But I actually wrote 108 pages and even cut way, like I cut like 30. Right. So I should have probably typed close to, in total, typed close to 140. How long did it take you to do this? Two years. Well, a little over two years. Around two years. Yeah. And that was like, so you do your prospectus and you defend your prospectus. And at the end, they okay the project. They tell you like, all right, we can move on from here. Or they, and they tell you like, if there's anything major they want you to change, they might say like, all right, this is where we're going to change this so you don't get too deep into it. And, you know, the uh, originally the questions of like, do you think there's enough there? By the end of my prospectus, I had a professor look at me and go, you know what about what is about to be the hardest part of this project? And I asked her what she meant and she said, Finding what you don't want to talk about. Right. Because you could write a hundred books on the, or not, you could write several doctorate dissertations on just a few of the subcategories that you've mentioned to us. So, like, yeah. early in my project, I had to, like, lay out, like, oh, this isn't about, while I'm going to touch on it, this project isn't solely about, you know, like, gender, because you could write a whole dissertation on gender and hunting, on, uh, uh, ethnicity and things like that like you could write a whole dissertation on that or just different things like that because there was just so much there and so so much of my time was spent just like typing constantly and I was a horrible I'm not a great student I'm really bad at sitting down and focusing for long periods of time so I remember panicking but it was a lot of you know just 
writing. I conducted interviews. The interviews were helpful because that added a lot of pages by the time I typed them out. Did you interview Ted Nugent? Um, <laughs> You'd have had 700 more pages. I'd have had <laughs> 7 million pages. The Mediator episode of the podcast with them, if you are an outdoorsman and you have not listened to that episode for the pure entertainment value of listening to a human like Stephen Rinella and a human like Ted Nugent talk about hunting. I can't. I can't. I can't do I'm, Ted Nugent I'm not a, I'm not a Ted. I'm not a Ted Nugent guy in the hunting world. I mean, <sighs> all that stuff he's shooting is high fence. You got to, like, I, while I don't, like, he's not my favorite, I just have to, like, sometimes just, like, appreciate him for what he is. Like, like the and that's, a, I talk about it in my thesis. I agree with that completely. Like, I don't hate him. The, the cultural. He's entertaining. Yeah, you do, Matt. No, but when you watch that show, I'm sorry I'm interrupting. Oh, you're good. No, 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 no. But like when you watch that show and he's up in his place in Michigan or whatever, or Texas, Mm -hmm. I think it's Michigan. Michigan. It's Michigan. Yeah, he'll be shooting all these different, he'll have all these different types of species coming by. I'm like, dude, you're sitting in the 100 acre fence. I mean, Mm -hmm. it may be more. I like when he shoots the little, uh, one of the little squirrel looking things. Um, It's like some kind of rodent. A chipmunk? Nutra? Uh, No, I forget what. Anyways. Uh, he'll he'll like be bow he hunting. released eight hundred chinchillas on this he'll land. He'll bow hunt them and smoke them and be like mm, backstraps. Yeah. <laughs> he has to yeah, do that. Dude. He's yeah. a wild human. Like this, can't grill it till you kill it. If you ever listen to him, you know his big thing is that like he never did drugs and he doesn't really drink. Even though he's a rock star, if you ask him about that, like on a podcast, he will look someone dead in the eyes and go, "The only thing I'm addicted to is the mystical flight of the arrow," which is a wild thing to say to another well, human being. That's not entirely. But I, I, and I'm sure he is addicted to, to hunting. But <laughs> he he was a giant sex addict when he was. A well, rock I'm pretty star sure that the, the I'm pretty sure he says wild women and yes, the it's wild women. Of the era. That's it. Um, yeah. he used to like have buzzards that would be on top of the speakers at his shows, and he would shoot them with a bow. And he's yeah. like, he would have a giant white buffalo that someone would wheel out, and he would shoot it with a bow on stage. And he talks about one time he missed it, and so he started like bowing to the buffalo. <laughs> he's a wild human being. Like, there's no, definitely is. he's done a lot for the culture, but I mean, it's and it's something I kind of talk about that, like, you know, if you're a hunter, you can show someone a picture of Ted Nugent, and they might say, "Oh, the Motor City Madman, Ted Nugent wrote Cat, Cat Scratch Fever." You show some people, and they'll be like, "Oh man, like whack them and stack them." Yeah. It's Uncle Ted. Yeah, like, you know, 340 acres in Michigan. Yeah, that's what yeah. this place is. What is that? Uh, what is the thing Ted Nugent always says? Can't oh. grill it till you kill it. Man. Whack them and stack them. Sacred backstrap. Uh, um, what else does he say? He he's, says cat scratch fever a lot, but I think he's that's a giant fan of Joe Biden. <laughs> huge yeah. huge. Yeah, he he's actually not into politics he's very removed from politics <laughs> really <laughs> yeah <laughs> hates him um, if you google if you google ted oh, nugent politics nothing comes up i remember when i was a kid i was watching <laughs> ted nugent on the outdoor channel or something and ted nugent reaches down in the cornfield and says i grew this corn and he picks up Corn that had just been dumped out of a bag. <laughs> okay. But there's a cornfield right there. Right. There is. Mm-hmm. He's like, I grew this corn. What's illegal about me moving this corn to kill a deer somewhere else? Nothing. And he throws it down. I'm like, you're right. That's me <laughs> for the rest of my life. And seven, seven-year-old, you just like, write that down, write that down. Write that down, write that down. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, it was a it was a really fun grad school was a because like I said, you were like surrounded. It was the first time the project really changed my perspective on hunting a lot because it was the first time I ever had to go at it and talk about it with people 
who either had no background in it whatsoever, knew nothing about it. Like a lot of my pages come from, I would write and I'd have a 10 page chapter and it would turn into a 30 page chapter because a professor would ask me like, explain. I, I remember at one point I said the word hunting license. She highlighted it, said, I didn't know you had to have a license to hunt. Walk me through this in a couple, in as short as you can. And we all sat down right now and opened Microsoft Word, and I told you to walk you through the entire process of the hunting license with background info and citations. It takes pages. Yeah. So, I mean, that just turned into, like, so much. I mean, just the history side of my thesis. I kept having to write. I mean, <clears throat> I know so much about Teddy Roosevelt now. So much. <laughs> but uh, it was really fun. I enjoyed it. It was uh, – but one of the – big things that I kind of went at was I wanted to describe it as a culture that is, first off, is a legitimate culture. And when they asked me, you know, like, what do you think makes it unique? I, I One big thing that I kind of kept harping on was it is one of the few things, if not the only thing, that is a hobby now for most people. 99% of the people who are practicing it, it is a hobby, it's for fun, that at one point, it was fundamental to human survival. You had to do it or else you were going to starve. And the way I kind of defend that was I was like, there are no cave paintings of badminton. Right. You know, like if you walk in and you see cave paintings, they're painting hunts, they're painting things like that. Hunting stories have been a part of human speech for forever. Um, and then I kind of said that, you know, if you follow the history of human beings, you can almost always attach hunting in some way to like major topics so like religion like you see it like throughout major religions and throughout the bible you know like when god gives dominion over animals and things like that to adam you hear like it mentions that esau was a hunter it mentions yeah. that you know like when women are described as beautiful in the bible there are times that they're compared to wildlife and things like that um in like thomas aquinas's theology a lot of it was about attaching the proof of God through nature and things like that. I'm, I'm not laughing at what you just said. I just, something just popped in my head. I'm sorry. I never knew I how could, to say I that could, last name until he said it. I would have said a Kenis or something. I've heard, no, I've don't, heard, that's, I've heard, don't say that. <laughs> I've heard Thomas Aquinas and Aquinas, and so I just kind of flip around, and one day someone's going to look at me and tell me that I'm butchering it. But uh, It's Aquinas. Yeah. No, it's you're talking it's about... Uh, you're talking about... Hunting stories dating back to whatever. Um, you showed me the first hunting story ever told around the cave and the campfire. It's the first man who ever lied. Oh, yeah. That's right. It's the first man who ever, that's the first lie ever told well, right there. The first first documented liar. <laughs> first documented liar. The first guy ever, he was like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. My stepdad, uh, they were a, they had a big hunting camp, and that's what, like, growing up, like, I'd go there a lot when I was younger. And they had a sign that hung above the door that said, hunters, fishermen, and other liars gather here. Yeah. So that's like the big, like I tell people that all the time. Like, Have you ever been from Prentice, you know, uh, Lake Mary Crawford, Monticello? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. The lake manager there. Don't know his name. Hope he hears this. Biggest liar in the world. <laughs> of all time, dude. Wait. The biggest liar of all Hold time. On. It's How long insane. Have you been this Can in? you walk me through what this guy looks like? Tall, slender, out of control. We might have to call Hunter? Cover. We might have to cut this. That, you just, just described yourself. Just described Are you looking himself. at a mirror? Yeah, well, okay. He's taller than me. He's actually, okay. 
I went to high school. If you're, if we're talking about the same guy, uh, he's a really nice dude. I went to high school. Oh, he's with a fantastic son. guy. Well, his dad's. Tell your buddy his dad's a liar. Um, <laughs> I'm joking, Tom. You may have to cut this. Yeah. Um, no, I'm absolutely not cutting this. No, out. but this he is staying. No, no, no. Listen, listen. When listen. we finish, I can describe this more. If we're if we're talking about, we are. If we're talking about the same. guy. We're talking about the same I know, guy. I, know this I love him to death. He's the best lake manager on earth. But <laughs> Lake Mary Crawford just reopened recently. Correct. A few, few years back. We'll put some Googles on this in a little while, and we'll and we'll then we'll cut up the edges because I know I know I know someone that works out there, and he might be the lake manager. He got a mustache. Uh, that's <laughs> yeah, that's him. That's him, dude. He's uh, yeah, he's a liar. Um, he he tells fish lies a lot. Um, be like, yeah, they got caught five five pounders out here. I'm like, I fish her every day. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> it's not true. That's like they redid Jeff Davis Lake. He has one of my fire rods in his office. He's, really? That's the guy. Yeah, I remember that's now. The guy. I'm gonna pull up. A- I'm not trying to drag your buddy's dad. I love this guy. I'm gonna pull up a picture. Of this also, guy in a screw while. the guy who manages Lake Jeff Davis. <laughs> Screw that guy. You No, you can tell. You can call him. You can get him on the phone now. Screw that guy. I hate him. I'm not going to be able to go home. Well, tell tell your buddies in Prentice that lake sucks, and so does their lake. Stop! <laughs> so does their lake manager, dude. I hate that guy. But no, the guy myself is funny. He's just, he just can't help himself. But uh, he, he does his job, though. His job is to manage the lake and promote the lake. Right. And he does it at the butt ramp. He promotes the, promotes the hell out of it. Yeah. Is they're disappointed when they leave, mm-hmm. and none of that came true. But anyway, sorry. See Jeff Davis, they redid it, and when they reopened it, they were just like, "Yeah, man, go nuts!" And it got fish to death. Yeah, the seventy thousand foot like everywhere, like yeah. Jeff Davis. It is not a big. It's not a big boy. Um, well, since you just hijacked this for a moment, <laughs> sorry, I'm a, my bad, dude. That was fun. Let's my let's bad, let's quick break. Tell your buddy, I'm sorry. When we come back, <laughs> we're gonna get on topic. I want to dive into the into the hunting culture study. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll do that right after a quick break. It doesn't matter whether you own your own business or work for someone else. You're going to need office supplies, printing, and office furniture. We all use them every day, so why not use a local family-owned business right here in the Pine Belt? Commercial Stationery Company offers great customer service, free next-day delivery, and free installation on furniture. Call Wayne and Daniel Ross at 601-582-4311. Or go by there and see them yourself at 723 Scuba Street, located in Hattiesburg. Welcome back. (laughs) Part two, we're back with Master Verdon. All right, take us back into wherever we were. Um, So before we left for the break. Shout out State Lakes. (laughs) (laughs) Before we left for the breaks, we were kind of talking about, you know, the, the main premise of my project which the title kind of turned into it was outdoorsman culture in the deep south understanding cultural capital which we'll get into later and social capital formation i wanted to call it more than wall ornaments to be kind of clever and then my professors were like it has to have something googleable like if you google my topic or keywords it has to like fit into a certain thing because it's all be on google scholar um but uh so yeah i kind of touched on how Hunting is something that has been this kind of relationship between man and nature has been kind of permeated through human history, and it has driven a lot of the major human milestones. I don't think you can talk about human history without talking about hunting and this relationship between man and nature. I'm a huge key part of that. Um, Something I've read about a lot in my uh, research was uh, in the 70s, there was a research symposium. And it's had some holes poked in it since then, but 
what hasn't since the 70s? I used to say cigarettes were good for you back then. But uh, <laughs> it was called Man the Hunter. And it was kind of this group of anthropologists who all these people were focusing on the agricultural revolution. And finally, a group of anthropologists were like, hey, we've been eating plants for a, and farming plants for a very brief period of human history. We've been eating mostly meat for a much larger percent of human history. Because, like, the concept of us being able to, like, drive to the Walmart over there and get a cantaloupe in January is unheard of until, like, extremely recently. So human beings were at the whim of seasons and when you could grow something and the elements and things like that. And so uh, it makes sense when they started doing a lot of research on people that they were like, oh, these people were eating a lot of meat, which means they had to hunt that meat, which means they were constantly out in the woods hunting. There's actually a lot of biological evidence that we are made in a way that very much leans into us being good hunters. For example, we're one of the few things on the planet that can like point something out very well. This might get shot down and Google fact check. Y'all might get torn to bits, but it's something along those lines. We're actually one of the few things that when you think about it, we can throw something at something else, yeah. which later lends into us figuring out at laddles figures out into us figuring out bows, which leans into us figuring out guns and rifles, and then we on and on and on. I've said my whole life that we have thumbs, and that separates us from everything else. Um, yeah. Our ability to run, our running capabilities as humans is uh, unique to anything else. Um, we're one of the few things that can not only sprint very well, but we can also, while we might not be the fastest, we can run long distances. So, like, very early primitive tribes – you know, your own flat lands or open areas, they would just run an animal to death. Because like yeah. deer are meant to, most animals are meant to sprint. For example, like a lot of animals that are meant to sprint, they're so made to sprint that they can't even look behind them when they're sprinting. Like, so when these animals would sprint, they were made to sprint for a short period, create some distance, stop, rest. Well, humans would just keep running. And so they wouldn't allow them to rest. So sooner or later, they would become exhausted. They would do buffalo runs. They would run buffalo off of cliffs and things like that. So we've always been extremely good at finding a way to not only get meat, but get meat that is far beyond what should be capable. Human beings being, it's insane to think that human beings killed a mammoth with atlatls. Yeah. Like we were killing what yeah, savage. is bigger than an elephant. And we were following <clears throat> them. You know, when the Europeans were getting here and they were talking to these nomadic tribes, a lot of them were like, what are y'all doing moving around? They're like, oh, we're following these buffalo that are three times the size of a cow. And we're running them down and killing them. And by by the time it was the buffalo were being wiped out, they were running down on horseback and things like that. But before horses, they were creeping up on these things and then getting amongst the herd and killing them, which is crazy to think about. And then... How many people do you think got trampled to death during things like this? Oh, I'm sure a good bit. That's actually deep in the archaeological record. When they started digging some early people in the Americas up, something they were finding was, you know, like um, healed bone fractures that they think are from, like, oh, this guy was trying to kill a buffalo and get an atlatl into it, and he got a little too close, and that thing swung and yeah. got a chunk of him. Or um, there's some huge on um, the Clovis site, where they found, like, a large buffalo kill. Because they'd run these things off of cliffs. There's actually a really good book. Stephen Ranella that runs Meat Eater, mm -hmm. has a book called The American Buffalo, or uh -huh. American Bite. 
and it's of like following American history through the buffalo. I suggest it to like everyone who's a hunter. It's so good. But he talks about, and I read some other, listened to some other archaeologists talk about it, that it's what helped us figure out human migration because we kept finding these buffalo skeletons that had like nicks in the rib cage. So obviously, because for the longest time, archaeologists were like, oh, humans back then couldn't hunt large game. And then they would find a mammoth rib cage that had a stone point lodged in it. It's like obviously somebody somebody was crazy yeah. enough to figure it out. And then we start figuring out that it's a major part of their food source for right. some of them. Uh are you familiar with John Reeves? The Boneyard Alaska guy? Yes, Dude, yes. That yes. is crazy. It's insane. The amount of mammoth and that's the other thing that a lot of people don't think about is, you know, for when people were first getting into the Americas, they were getting into an area that had no people in it. So then they move into an area that has no people in it in a very quick span. They get from the, they walk across the land bridge. Um, some people think that what kept them from crossing the land bridge for a while was the fact that there was a bear that was short faced bear, short faced bear, yeah, dude. and a giant sloth that was eight foot tall. Um, <laughs> See, Ben doesn't know anything about that. that. Would mess you I've up. Heard I've heard that story. History guy doesn't even know about the short faced bear. <laughs> and and in a super super short period of time, they got all the way down to the tip of South America, which is wild to think about. But also, the fact that just in that period of time, the amount of changes that happened amongst American wildlife. The history, you can do it for the world, but I have a large portion of my thesis that I focused on the American history of hunting. And it is one of the most complicated relationships in just a short period of time since Europeans stepped foot on here. When you think about the fact that, and I, this was a huge topic for me, when Europeans land here, a large portion of the Native American population had already died of disease. Some people estimate that from when Columbus's boot stepped on sand in the New World to when major European expansion was beginning to happen in the Americas, 90% of the Native Americans already died of disease. So those were the people who were like hunting buffalo and things like that. So these people are dying off, and these buffalo are everywhere now because their main predator is dying. And moving, and so when you hear these people describe, it was something that really blew my mind. When I think of Mississippi, the South, I think about rows of perfectly straight pine trees and armadillos and coyotes (laughs) and things like that. The dudes who walked through here first saw none of that. They saw a completely different South, a completely different America, and they were coming from a Europe that had completely and utterly destroyed their natural resources. Like... The, uh, the economy of the world was being held up in a large majority way by American market hunting. There's a book that I had that um, Andrea Smalley wrote it. It was from 2022. It's called The Market in Birds, and it's commercial hunting, conservation, and the origins of wildlife consumerism. And it talks about how just they focus on birds in this, but like when you Google like the Hudson's Bay Company, it's a British company that made beaver felt right. stuff. Largely dependent on trapping. And they moved <clears> over <throat> here and took over the world. They were Jeff, the Jeff Bezos of dead beavers. <laughs> um, if you want a dead beaver, they could ship it to you. But uh, they were running the <laughs> we need, show. We need turkeys. Yeah. We need them back. Mm-hmm. And then 
They'll it's, kill other things too. I mean, that's <laughs> who uh, that's who Leonardo DiCaprio was working with. Oh, in the Revenant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that, I thought that was his summer gig. Really? Um, yeah, he traps <laughs> for the Hudson Bay Company in his off time. Um, <laughs> but uh, the fur boom and just a lot of different species like um, beaver and the Hudson's Bay Company whale oil, like whale hunting in like around Nantucket and things like that. Um, the egrets like that we see and like the herons. I don't know if y'all ever noticed when they're kind of molting and they're in their molting phase. They have these like wispy little feathers. Those feathers were like super popular to go on hats in Europe. Those birds almost got hunted to extinction because women wanted the feathers on their hats. Um, the way that Native Americans made their stone points changed. Like archaeologists can notice a shift when Europeans come to America because they found out that you could waterproof deer hides, make clothes out of it. You could ship them back to Europe. They could make clothes out of it and sell it and make a killing. And so they start telling these Native Americans, they're like, oh, if you will kill deer for us and bring them to us, we'll ship them back and uh, we'll pay you. So these are people who have like no concept of, they have concept of bartering and some right. concepts of money. But not of currency. But so not much. of like this, like when the first... Spanish were landing in the Gulf. They were like, where's gold? And they were like, you mean the rocks that we find sometimes? I don't care about those rocks. Like, And it, it turned into a whole thing. But it changed the way that they made stone points. It changed the way that people view money. And it actually like propped up the economy for the longest time. And then it kind of, by the time the early 1900s hits, we have, and this is talked about a lot in Ranella's book, we have decimated the American buffalo not just through hunting, but through um, hunting, through selling the pelts. They would kill these buffalo, skin them, leave the carcasses, pile them up, and later turn the bones into fertilizer. They were encouraging people to kill buffalo because they would say that every buffalo killed is a meal taken away from a Native American person. Mm -hmm. um, they knew that the Native Americans had great spiritual connections to the buffalo, so they knew if they could take that, they could break them. They were largely, yeah, largely dependent on it. Mm -hmm. That was what they depended their lives on. Um, fences, when they started farming and putting fences up, these buffalo that were used to being able to migrate across what we would call states, they're bumping into fences and they don't know where to go. Um, so by the early 1900s, we have, like, destroyed the American ecosystem. We have started cutting all our trees. We, The beaver population is next to nothing. That's why there's Nutra here, because the Spanish yeah. were like, oh, no, we put all our eggs into this Louisiana basket and there's no beavers left. What if we haul a few of these? Big rat boys. They took nine of them, the first ship, that, and they dropped nine off. And they were like, mm, maybe they'll do something. And now they're everywhere. But uh, by the early 1900s, and to put it into perspective, most um, studies think that there were, on the entirety of the North American, anywhere that white-tailed deer populated North America, which is most of the continental United States, there were only 500,000 deer in that whole area. Which, to put that into a different perspective, the population in Mississippi alone is expected to be like 1.7 million. So, like, it got down to less than a third. If you took Mississippi's population, cut it down to less than a third, and spread that across the whole country. So, it was to the point that there was, like, there we, we did make a lot of species extinct. There used to be a penguin in Maine. Yeah. Gone. Um, a bunch of things. Bison. We've we've decimated this. And uh, well, we hunted the turkey during near to extinction. We hunted the turkey during near to extinction. If you talk to really really old men, they'll tell you that before the turkey boom, if you were hunting turkeys in Mississippi and you killed a bird every other year, like near the river, you were like a jam up turkey hunter. Yeah. Well, hunter and I've got a 
a great uncle that just passed uh, right before the new year. And uh, I don't know if Hunter remembers this, but I remember when I was a kid, uh, you know, he grew up in a time where you're talking about that deer population being so small. Like if you saw a deer track, it was a good day. Mm -hmm. And if you shot a doe, you didn't tell him about it. You know, exactly. Cause he was, he was the kind of guy that, you know, grew up where you just, that was, that was taboo. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so yeah lots now wildlife and fisheries is like begging. They're like, please <clears throat> shoot some does. Like we're right. begging you guys to shoot some does. Um, dude, I hope so. freaking Tate Reeves screwed me, dude. What he do? I had, you I were, had, you were making enemies tonight. I had two does in the backyard last night by the pool, and I'm like, <laughs> and oh, Tate you, Reeves, oh, you didn't get your if, letter. If you Tate, didn't get your letter. Tate never sent the letter. Like he maybe kind of promised he would have. I don't remember him promising. I just remember you saying, hey, can you write a letter to my HOA? And he laughed. Yeah, well. He, I was, did, he didn't say he wouldn't. But I was waiting for you would. to say that Tate Reeves like gets up out of the mud and stabs both of them. Uh, no, uh, I'm going to I'm gonna get the night vision 6.5. I mean, uh, printer blackout silenced. I'm, I'm going to interrupt for a moment because I listened to a podcast. Uh, maybe it was a Southern Outdoorsman or something recently. Mm -hmm. and it was on duck hunting. When I when they got into it, it was, the episode was called "Where's the Ducks," and it was about how they feel like they're counting them wrong, and that's why numbers are down as far as hunters see versus what they say. But basically, what it got into was they ripped on Mississippi for a little bit because I didn't know this because you know I've only been duck hunting five or six years that apparently the season used to end January fifteenth. Yeah, but they immediately these guys are not in Mississippi. <clears throat> they started talking. One of this guy, one of these guys from Michigan State. And they started talking about, well, what changed that? And immediately he goes, Trent Lott. He really? Said, what do you mean? He said, well, his constituents were not very happy having to quit duck hunting on January 15th in Mississippi because it's not very cold yet. The, yeah. You know, you're catching. Yeah. And so he is the one that got it changed to January 31st. And there's a lot of biologists that disagree with that. They believe that the pairing has already happened by January 15th, so you should leave them alone because they're breeding at this point. Well, but I, but it was could the, be. It was the only name mentioned in this entire like hour long podcast of why the seasons have changed and stuff. And immediately they were like, "Yeah, Trent Lott, in Mississippi." And I was like, "Oh man, wow. is this guy alive, Trent Lott?" <laughs> he's uh, still, yeah, he's alive, still alive, but he's not. He's, he's, he's no, no longer, longer a senator. senator. But he used to be the Senate oh. Majority Leader, so that's a big deal. You know, he had yeah. a lot of pull. He was the Senate Majority Leader during the Bush administration. Yeah, so he had as much pull, you know, as anybody up there in Congress. Why didn't somebody talk to him about the American Red Snapper? Well. I need his number. <laughs> he won't do you any Me good. and him are on the same. We're about to get on the same page on some conservation issues once we get further down. But uh, that was my. I wanted you don't. To, yeah, I, I listened to that and I was like, I need to bring that up in the podcast because I didn't even know that that it used to be January fifteenth. I, I didn't either. Yeah, and it was him. They said made a big stink and was like, look, my people are not happy with this January fifteenth. And even though the biologists were telling them one thing, you know how they'll do. They just went the other way. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But uh, that actually goes pretty well with, you know, like before when you, I, we just said like, you know, like by the 1900s, you know, there's, there's no laws on hunting for the most part. There's no rules. Everybody's just kind of making it up as they go. And this is also a group of people who, like I said, they come from Europe. They have no culture of hunting, no background of hunting, nothing. Right. So they land out here and they, they're looking at like, oh, we could, we can, kill as much as we want like we're never going to run out this is an unending supply 
And so it's like this kind of panic sets in because they're reaching into what they think is a barrel with no bottom and they just start tapping the end. And so some people are kind of like, you know, like this is going to be a hopeless cause. And the culture is, that's another huge part of the hunting culture that I kind of talk on. And I'm about to get specifically into the South, but you know, we're one of the only cultures that screwed it up for ourselves and then we fixed it. Right. Right. Because if you read like even like government (coughs) opinions, we are one of the only countries in the world, if not the only country that does a hunter's first conservation method. We said the country had to get together and say like, hey, the hunters may have put us in this mess, but if we could just change their mindset, we can fix this. It's kind of like the uh, Pendleton tax. Mm-hmm. The yeah. Pendleton tax, like the Pittman-Robertson Act. And yeah. actually, I, the way I kind of, I think I, I originally named it something witty and they made me change it, but I named it Teddy Turns the Tide. Mm-hmm. So there's some like talk about it. People are kind of getting into it. And then excuse me, Teddy Roosevelt becomes president. And when Teddy becomes president, he's one of the first presidents to like, he's super popular, like super duper, like everyone loves him. He is one of the first people to have what we now call a press secretary. And uh, so he's blowing it up, doing really good, and he becomes the face. He starts putting these people into action, creating national parks, creating um, what would become many of the agencies that now work in conservation and they just kind of used him as the face of it like whenever they would do like a press thing they'd be like teddy get up front smile let's go huge hunter as the for anyone who doesn't know he hunted throughout his life anytime something major happened in his life he would like answer it with a hunting trip good or bad um his mom and his mom and wife died on the same day on valentine's day um when his wife gave birth to his first kid he went hunting for like three years pretty much, like ran off in the woods for a long time and like got his head right, came back, becomes president, um, loses, runs, is president for two terms, runs under the Bull Moose Party, loses, goes to Africa, hunt, no, actually goes map the Nile, an uncharted portion of the Nile River, almost dies. Really good book on that, The River of Doubt by Candace Millard. Um, went to Africa at the end of his regular, like his terms as president. He helped um, put a lot of stuff in the Smithsonian. And I say all this to say the culture of hunting, here's where we see another major shift because it turns into those are the seeds that are planted that would later become the modern era of we see people that are majorly focused on conservation. Because like I said, before that, even after that for a little while, we not only don't have an understanding of conservation, but you see a lot of people, they don't care. They're hunters and they don't care. And then you see somebody now that if you don't care, you're the worst. Like yeah. you are ridiculed. You have very little um, good press for yourself and things like that. And um, you see it in the South very largely, you know, like the history of hunting in the South. It's a really interesting time because people get here to the South there's a lot of game animals. There's a lot of opportunity. The Gulf, the the Delta, all those areas. And it becomes something that for like the Southern man, it gets like deeply tied in with masculinity. <clears throat> it's deeply tied in with the culture of the Southern man. If you are visiting a dude in the South and he owns a bunch of land, he's taking you hunting. You're going to kill some bears. You're going to do a bunch of wild stuff. Um, plantations would often have a huntsman. 
meaning that it was a slave that was allowed to own a firearm, and he would hunt for that plantation. That's right. Um, the guy who took Teddy Roosevelt bear hunting for the Teddy bear story. Yep. Um, that's what he originally did. There's a really good podcast on the Bear Grease, the Meat Eater podcast, that talks about that. And um, Had him tied to a tree. Mm-hmm. But he actually didn't do it. The guy that right. was taking him hunting didn't right. do it. He actually got really mad at Roosevelt because he told Roosevelt to sit somewhere and wait for this bear, and Roosevelt got impatient and moved. And then they they cornered the bear up in that area with the dogs, and the bear killed one of his favorite dogs. And, like, press still followed the president around at that time. Like, this was when that was kind of becoming a big thing. And he's coming out of the woods, and, like, a reporter was like, did the president kill a bear? And this guy turns to a reporter in that time period and goes, no, but if he would have listened to me, he would have, and walks off, <laughs> which is wild back then. But uh, no, you imagine cool. taking Joe Biden hunting? Oh, man. I was about to tell you, Saddam Hussein, when I was at uh, <clears throat> when I was at Liberty in Baghdad, one of his palaces is his old hunting lodge because he hunted. What did he kill? Dates. No, they have <laughs> like, uh, I had to look it up because I was like, what could he hunted? Gazelle, other antelope, <clears throat> hyena, jackal, Probably wild Probably goats, pig. huh? <laughs> goats in the mountains? No, I was being dead serious right there. I wasn't, I wasn't, well, Bag- I wasn't a slur. Baghdad is totally in <laughs> flatland. So okay. It's all... Dude, in the movies, every time there's always mountains. So that's yeah. well, Afga- <laughs> Afghanistan is nothing but mountains, okay. pretty much, except the west southwest side. But uh, Iraq is a only the northern part of Iraq has mountains. Okay. Gotcha. Ten four. Noted. This like has been Middle Eastern it. topology with <laughs> Matt. <laughs> but no, we were talking about you know everybody hunting, and I was like, you know, if I'm not mistaken, I think Saddam hunted, and I looked it up, and yeah, yeah, he had a hunting lodge, and he hunted. Well, Back to the American Red Snapper. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I will not rest until we're going to stock them at Lake Mary Crawl. We've yeah. done well. They probably got them if you'll ask the manager. <laughs> you teed that one up for me. I did. That was good. Oh man, <laughs> I'm gonna take a layup if you'll give me one every time. Uh, but uh, yeah, the South was very peculiar for that because there were so many conversations going on because hunting had just like it had in a lot of the country, it had become so deeply ingrained in the culture. It became something, it's where we start to see an example of hunting. It went from, it's crazy how history repeats itself. They leave Europe where hunting is only for the high class and the ruling class. They come to America and recreate that in a way. Because by the time the Civil War breaks out, a lot of the hunting is for show. Mm-hmm. It's like you're all getting on a horse, you're wearing really cool clothes, you're running a fox around with a dog. And that's not everything, of course, but it becomes tied into that. And then, like I said, we see this major shift in the early 1900s because people become focused through the efforts of the government because it was one of those things everyone was like, oh, I love Teddy. What is Teddy like? And they were like, Teddy loves hunting. And everybody was like, I love hunting because I love Teddy. And so um, this major shift happens in the culture, and um, it kind of leads us into what – we see today in culture and it's i wrote a lot about you know cultural capital which cultural capital was started by a a french anthropologist called pierre bourdieu and he wrote about the ruling class in french in france and how they would create this cultural wealth like the way that you talked got you a higher social wealth like you look at it as like everybody has a social bank and the way that you are perceived and the things that you do 
gives you dollars in your social bank. So if you do something that's seen like as lower class or things like that, you have less money in your social bank. And we're always making transactions. Well, he focused a lot on very high class people. And then as time went on, it spread into culture in general. And I got really locked in on it with hunting because it's something that, especially in the South, it is so permeated in the culture that we are all walking around with just like a dollar amount on our forehead if you were an outdoorsman. And by that, I kind of mean we're all, when you live in an area that's extremely rural in a lot of places, most everyone's an outdoorsman, you are creating a value system for yourself that we don't even realize. It's a, I think word one of the anthropologists worded it as structuring structures that structure structures that's pretty much a quote uh say that five times fast but uh (laughs) they uh i'd start to focus on and it was something that i didn't even see until i started taking a step back and looking at it for example if you wear I'm trying to think of a really good one sicka i was just about to say i'm about to upset a lot of people Sitka, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna hate on Sitka. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just gonna. Use I'm this better as an than example. you because I wear Sitka. <laughs> I'm <laughs> joking. Actually, he actually has on a Sitka hat right now. Yeah, yeah. dude. Yeah, he's wearing a Sitka hat, and I'm wearing a Mossy Oak Companions hat, the <laughs> Bottomland hat, because everything's better in Bottomland. Um, but stumps. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I say that to kind of say uh, my professors kind of. I had to explain it to them extremely carefully, but to put it into perspective. We give value depended on your group and your cultural niche based on the things that you do. Like if I see someone walk in in all Sitka, I immediately know, oh, this person can not only knows what Sitka is, but he can afford to buy it. So he's in a full suit of Sitka. So I'm like, okay, this guy has high consumer capital, like high, he has money. He can afford to do it. If he pulls up, or he's really poor now because he has, or Sika. or he is about to starve. Um, but if you pull up, like we all have seen it, you know, like if you show up to the duck hole and some if, to some public land duck hunt, and for some reason this guy's rich enough to do all this, but it's still hunting public land. If he pulls up in a brand new truck, all Sitka gear, Gunner kennel, Yeti coolers, all that, you immediately know, like, oh, this guy has the funds to spend this money because what a lot of Southern dudes don't even realize and dudes, women, everyone who's a practitioner in this culture, most of your decisions in life, if you are a hardcore outdoorsman, you don't even realize it, but you're making them based on that culture. So like the vehicles that we drive, like what, what do y'all drive? Uh, Duramax four wheel drive. I've got a Tacoma. F-250. I drove a Camaro in undergrad and I got rid of it because I kept looking stupid driving <laughs> onto deer land in a Camaro, and I, I did it. in the duck hey, at the boat ramp. I used to have an Acura TL that I'd go hunt. Exactly, man. and we make those decisions. It's in the back of your head. You're like, well, I can't hunt in a in a Lexus. You know what I mean? Like, or the dogs that you own. I remember a friend of mine in high school that grew up. They had a lease in West Monroe when he was really little. They only ever had duck dogs for the longest time. He was perplexed by a girl in my art class buying a dog. And he was, because he said, why are you getting that little dog? What is it going to do? She was like, oh, it's just a companion. Oh, there's a number. Uh, yes, we have. Yeah. I know a number of duck hunters that are like, I would never own a dog that can't work. Yeah. Well, I said that. So the I had a schnauzer in college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and had him long after college. And I loved him. He's the greatest, mm-hmm. you know, greatest companion ever. But all he could do is go get a tennis ball. And I said then... I, I think I killed a deer one time and didn't find it or something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'll never get another dog 
they can't do something like trail a deer or go get a bird or something like that. I have one of each. I have a really good duck dog, and then I have one that uh, is a freeloader. Exactly. And hangs like, out at the house. But it's something that a lot of hunters, they'll, like, make that. Like, you'll hear, like, oh, when we got married, like, me and my wife had the conversation. I was like, you can buy whatever Fifi dog you want, but I will always have a dog that can work for me. We We have two dogs that are both bred to work, I guess, all dogs were bred for a purpose at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a Cocker Spaniel and you know, he, he does well. We play in the pool, mm-hmm. you know, we get bumpers in the pool. Yeah. He goes and gets someone to tell him to brings him back, whatever. It's all we do. I don't duck hunt cause I'm not walking 47 miles to shoot woodies. Um, and, uh, my wife's dog though is a dapple Dotson. Do you know what Dotsons were bred for? Hunt Badger rats. hunting. Hunting rats and bad anything that burrows. Anything that burrows. Get up in there. About like a, uh, you know what this dog does? Wiener dog. dog. Wiener. Yeah. You know what she hunts? Doorbells. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's the saddest thing ever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry. But there's videos I out there of people in Europe who still hunt with weenie dogs. If you're ever bored, if you ever just want to one-up your wife, you can be like, this is what they were meant, she was meant to do. That's what I tell her. I'm like, they're, they're like 122 out of 130 dogs on intelligence. Because they go into badger holes. They're stupid. You got to be dumb and small <laughs> to do that. And she's just. But it, but it goes to show that, you know, like this culture that we're all living in, if you're a, a passionate practitioner of the sportsman's lifestyle, you are living not only within a culture, but you're creating this type of cultural capital that can be dissected. Like I said, if you've got all the expensive stuff, but you listen, it's something that I talked about with my professors. If a dude who didn't know what he was talking about, but had all the gear, sat down in that chair, started talking to us, we could all start making, and who knows, y'all might be thinking this about me, but could start making eye contact and be like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. Like, well, you can make that and be like, oh, this guy doesn't really know anything. And that takes him from, oh, this guy owns all this stuff, he must be good at this, to like nothing. To the point that at times... It can almost be a bad, like, cultural capital thing to do to own all the nice stuff because it puts you in that target. And then you have those old men that are like, oh, Fred Bear killed every deer he ever shot and red flannel. And right. It turn- and then there's God, the- I've heard that. There's the capital of, <laughs> of knowing of other people vouching for you. This is a culture that it's almost like sports where if you're good at it, you don't have to tell anyone that you're good at it. Um, we, I, I do it. Someone walked into work the other day. Can't hide like, game. Well, yeah. When he walked right. out the door, I was like, that dude right there can get after a bird, can kill some turkeys. He has gotten after them. That's what everybody says when I go on. That's what everybody says when you walk out the room. When you walk right. out the room, they're gonna be like, I gotta like, kill that guy some birds. Can kill some stuff. Yeah. No, he's just still sleeping in a tent. <laughs> but it's uh, it's deeply embedded in Southern culture, and it's deeply embedded to the point that I argue it has even affected our language. I get really deep into <clears throat> the linguistic side for a little while, and I talk about how there are certain if someone who was not from the not only not a hunter but not from the South once again sat down in this chair across from us started listening to us tell hunting stories, it would be like listening to someone speak Spanish. Right. When you really think about it, and it's even it's even in the deep south, it even changes from state to state. A really good example is my grandparents all spoke French. So there are certain animals that for Cajun people. I got one. Go they, ahead. They still, I, I might be about to use one in your Go eyes. Grease. 
No, actually, but you're, but that's a good one. That's a really good example. It's a scalp. What did you it's say? It's a scalp. A type of duck, but dogri. But dogri. to French, but to Cajun people, that's a dogri. To divers, like diving ducks, they call that pool, uh, not pool, dude. They call that uh, plongeurs. And coots, they don't call a coot a coot. A coot's what, a... Oh, they don't? Mm-hmm. What do they call a coot? A pool do. Pool do. Okay. I've heard Really that. Cajun pool people. Do. But yeah. a really, really good one that I grew up with was a crappie, which is a very... First off, a very specific thing to a lot of the South. A lot of people call them white perch. Mm-hmm. Crappie, for me growing up, was a sockele. That is the fr- that. that is the Cajun word for so- for crappie. I was old, like I can't remember how old I was in my teens before I got embarrassed enough to finally like lean over someone and be like, "What is a crappie?" Yeah. yeah. And he was like, "Did I, you call it a crappie first? I I, I remember <laughs> like reading the words and I was like, "Some uh, it can't be crap. It can't be." Like no one's just calling them crappies, but uh, they're great fish. But uh, it 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 goes into the linguistic side. We call things specific things. We say things in a specific way. The um, there's a huge linguistic part of calling. The cultural value of calling. Like if I I remember being young, like I told a friend of mine this that's trying to get into duck hunting. I gave him one of my old calls, and was like, "You either need to get a dog, get some decoys, or learn how to call." Because if not, when you get past the, like, novice that it's, like, fun to teach someone how to duck hunt, they're going to quit inviting you. Because yeah. you got to bring something to the table. you got to have some type of value. And you see it throughout. I, I'm always going to be a novice. Don't <laughs> stare at me that But, way. yeah, you see it throughout hunting culture. <laughs> like, I have some friends that they run uh, coon hounds. They run right. blue ticks. And every once in a while, I'll go with them. It's fun. You know what I mean? But sooner or later, if I started coming every day, they'd be like, hey, man, when are you going to get a dog? Yeah, Like, you got to bring something to this yeah. with us. And it's something that we don't even realize that we do it. We get into our niche, and we go all in on our niches, and we don't even realize. And there's a whole set of linguistics and anthropology that studies um, humans interacting with non-human species, like animals and things like that. So the fact that someone can call a turkey really well, the fact that some of the best turkey callers that I know, they're so deeply ingrained in it. It's such a part of their life that when they work a box call, their mouth moves. Yeah. And they don't even know it. Like I pointed out, I was like, your mouth moves like you're working a mouth call. And he was like, really? I was like, yeah. But that's something you're not only, it's something that is not only deeply embedded in our culture, it's one of the few things that is something that we start doing at an extremely young age. You think it's something that's passed down genetically well or is it just something that being in the area you grow up in it you just kind of learn it or is there a genetic disposition to to be able to do some of those things what's something i kind of i cover it a little bit it's something that is extremely involved in nature and i think extremely involved in nurture which is something else that makes the culture really interesting because like i said a lot of biologists have argued that we are kind of made to be really good at catching prey and things like that and not just that, but in the south and in rural areas, you see it a lot in like Michigan, all those states that's extremely rural. They, at a very young age, this becomes what you do. Your dad wakes you up early in the morning. It's like, get in the truck. I'll buy you a little Debbie if you get in the truck. Just get in the truck. And then you all go and you go to the deer camp. And it's slowly, you don't even realize that it's happening. When I did my interviews, I think the oldest, one of my questions was, what is your earliest memory of hunting and fishing? The oldest that someone told me was 11. The youngest was a friend of mine walking me through him shooting a deer in his dad's lap at five. Yeah. And he, him like vividly remember doing that. Or like 
a friend, uh, someone that I talked to telling me about him killing his first turkey and it being something that like got so much emotion out of his uncle that took him. He picked him up and spun him around and was like, and he was like, the biggest part of it was, and I argue this too in the culture, and this is something that um, I know some of y'all have, y'all have kids and everything like that, and you're there getting to the age. One of the very interesting things about Southern culture, hunting culture, and things like that, hunting allows for a system in place to teach certain lessons to the next generation in a way that is far easier to pass those lessons along. Like if this room is full of 10-year-olds and we walked in and said, I'm going to teach all of you how to sit down and be quiet for the next hour and a half, they would all revolt and set this building on fire. But when you are hunting, when you're a kid, you have to do it. So I like I argue throughout my thesis that hunting inadvertently became the way that a lot of Southern fathers and outdoorsmen fathers, that's the way that they teach patience. Life skills. Life skills, conduct, how to speak to someone, how to tell a story, when to be quiet, when to talk. How to lie. When to lie. <laughs> like when you're in the truck and they're like, when we pull up, we're going to tell Mr. Billy that we caught our limit of, we're, we caught our limit of specs today. And when they're like, dad, we didn't catch our limit. And they're going to be like, yeah, I know. Mine's so much different than that. I go the all the opposite direction. I'll be like, when we pull up and they're out here, you tell them we didn't see a cotton picking thing today. We, we saw no to deer. Lake. <laughs> don't, um, don't look at the, uh, don't look at the hatch under the seat. Over and over when the game warden's talking yeah. to you. <laughs> when that game warden pulls up, you look at the ground. You don't say a word. Right. Cry Just a little don't bit. don't talk. If he asks you something, cry a little bit. We're, uh... When the we're, game warden pulls up, you're six. Dad, I'm 12. Yeah, but you're six right now. We're getting close to having to wrap up on time. I had a question, though, that I, that I wanted to ask. Mm-hmm. And this is more of an opinion than anything yeah. else for you. What do you think, like, because hunting culture is, it's always been here. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 evolving yes. all the time. What do you think? Your opinion, and Hunter and Matt, you guys chime in on this too. What is hunting culture going to look like in another fifty to seventy-five years? That's an awesome question because it's something that um, my interviews were all with people under the age of thirty-five. I, I interviewed. I originally wanted to interview people across a broad age spectrum, but then I got to thinking about it, like. Someone's 75-year-old grandpa did not experience the same. Like, when you talk... Different hunting. Jefferson Davis County, where I'm from, used to be, like, the mecca of hunting quail. And I have seen four quail in my life. We've talked about it numerous times on here, how there are no quail anymore. Like, when I talk to some of these old men and I say, "What did you hunt a lot? Like, what's the biggest deer you've ever killed? And he'll be like, oh, when I was a kid, there were no deer and there were quail everywhere, so we hunted quail. Um, That question is really good because we are at a very... I kind of talk about it a little bit. We're at a kind of turning point in hunting because hunting is starting to become more public. Everybody's starting to see it. Like whenever Meat Eater comes out with a new season and it's on Netflix, it's in the top five in Netflix in America. When you do, uh, you know, it's never been easier to buy things about hunting or get information about hunting. Like if you, Mossy Oak is posting things all the time. This podcast, there's the, the, the amount of nonprofits that exist for hunting. I wonder sometimes that we have so much out there to, mm-hmm. to, to read about, to, to watch, to listen to now. I wonder sometimes if we're going to do hunting more harm than good by doing that. 
So that's a major argument that I'm starting to see kind of pop up. There are some people who are starting to argue that the publicity and the things of that nature are starting to bring in either too many people or too many people who don't know what they're doing, which in a way you can argue that that's gatekeeping because like, for example, I asked my interviewees, one of the questions that I asked them was, what do you think is something people should be doing for conservation? And they would argue like, take a kid hunting, take someone hunting all the time, take, find a kid that doesn't know what he's doing, take him in the woods. So uh, you have that. I think in 50 years, I think we're either about to see a decline because in well, so- the the numbers of hunting in, in America are declining. Yes, they're declining. You're starting to see more and more politicians that aren't for hold hunting. On. We hold on, at, see a finger. We looked at this. I think the number of hunters is about the same. It's a percentage of the population. Well, that's what yes. I mean. It was the, percent- the population's yes. growing, but the number of hunters was the number of hunters in the woods is about the same, though. You're not you're, right. Yeah, and but, to, the, but as far as the the number of of new hunters we're getting is not keeping pace with the population. Exactly. And to some could argue that those numbers are highly skewable because like, for example, they keep up with that through like license sales. We all know a bunch of old guys who don't buy a hunting license, right. who haven't bought a hunting license since 1986. I think that number is just, and this is a guess, but I think that numbers is not great enough to, mm-hmm. to say that it would skew the, the, the percentages that much. My opinion on what we were talking about is I think with everything – how you can instantly see hunting and stuff now mm-hmm. is really good for outdoors companies, but I don't think we're going to increase hunting numbers a lot because they're going to learn that that's instant gratification. What you're watching, right? It's not real until mm-hmm. they stand out there in 18 degrees and shoot and have some coots come by. What are they? Will do. Will do. Will do. Yeah. Uh, and no, no mallards. Then I think they're going to be like, wait, this this kind of sucks. And yeah. it's what <laughs> it, to 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 build on that. I think we and we see it. We all know people that do it. I think the next 50 years, you're about to see a lot of people because it's never been easier to go buy a shotgun. It's never been easier to buy camouflage. It's never been easier to do all that. But it's also, in some ways, never been harder to be really good at duck hunting, to kill just nothing but mallards. My dad says it all the time. My dad hunted Louisiana for ducks his whole life, and he he messes with me all the time. He's like, we used to kill limits of birds all the time. I'm like, yeah, everybody killed limits of birds in the 80s. You fart. But... uh, (laughs) Uh, he's going to listen to this and he's going to make fun of me. We, we could do a whole show on the mallards. So the mallard population has decreased. Exactly. Right, We're seeing these things where like human, not just hunting activity, but human activity is starting to affect animals. And I think in the next 50 years, you're about <clears> to see a lot of people spend money on hunting. You're about to see not a lot of great hunters. I that's, think that's But you're accurate. also about to see a lot of great conservationists. And I think too, and, and I know we got to wrap up, I think hunting hunting as a whole now because of all the the stuff that's on television or podcasts or radio shows i think hunting's more under attack now than it's ever been too because of that yes um and then you know it's a different world and i'm 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 i'd love to be able to revisit this 50 years from now and I won't be here. This would be a great time capsule i mean with modern with modern medicine there's no reason you can't live to 300 350 easy shout out ricky bobby um (laughs) Wake up in the morning, I piss excellence. Yeah, but thanks. I mean, I know we're getting short on time, but I feel like I kind of talked you guys' ear off, and I feel horrible about it. Um, no, it's been great. I would love. Do y'all have any more questions? Uh, I'd love to feel. I just something. have a statement. Yeah, you know what's not going to decline? What? What's not in decline? The American Red Snapper. 
Schwarzenegger. No, even though they want you to think it is. The American Red Snapper's not in decline. I defend that conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy. It's the truth. Red, the Red Snapper population is far higher. Fine. It's fine. It's better. It's better than it's ever... It's better than it's been in years. That's all you can catch if you are not in Louisiana. If you go from... In Al- if you fish in Mississippi and Alabama, that's all you can catch. Yeah. There's just red snappers just... See, I grew up as... That was my, that's my main, like, if you, if you put a gun to my head and told me I had to sell everything but one outdoor hobby, I'd, I'd, I'd inshore fish the rest of my life. That's, like, my main love outdoors-wise. And I grew up a redfish and speckled trout fisherman because I fished Louisiana. I got older, and I was like, what's everyone's obsession with these red snapper? And then the red snapper, then I start seeing videos of dudes spearfishing, and they're freaking oh gosh come on i gotta go home guys <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry but yeah i mean I no he said that it. because that's all i'll do but do y'all, i'd love he's, he does the spirit i'll take you let's Tomor- go let's well, go tomorrow he's gonna be at the boat ramp in lawrence county loaded with ducks lake mary crawford lakes. lake mary crawford yeah. <laughs> cut that i'm in lake mary crawford uh, gator hunting but y'all but I'd, I'd love do y'all have any more questions like i said i feel like i know you said we were kind of kind of run with the research and all but I can talk about it for a year. I know we don't have the time, but I'd, if y'all have any more questions, I'd like to. I'd like to come back and revisit this on another episode. Um, yeah, I'm more than happy to come back and talk with y'all or um, anything like that if I wanted to. I'd, I'd love to talk about like some of the stuff we're talking about now about the future of hunting, and how that ties into your thesis. Um, but for tonight, we got to go. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much for coming thank y'all and doing so this. much. This was, this was awesome, fantastic. You are. Uh, your wealth of knowledge on the on the topic for sure, um, Matt Hunter. Anything else? I do not have anything else. You no. want you want to give a shout out to the guy to, to at Lake Mary Crawford one more time? Yeah, I love that guy. <laughs> okay. I really do. I mean that genuinely. All right, but that'll do it, man. Thank you guys for listening. Till next time. Thank y'all. My Mississippi.